Yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, we are recording. Oh, great. So I don't know if you want to get, is this our, uh, is this our official journal club, you and I? This is our second journal club, Tommy. Isn't that exciting? I don't know if it's a club I... with two of us. If so, the it's, no, it's yeah. not much of a club, <laughs> I would say. Very exclusive. Yes. Um, that's one way you could put it. I wanted to bring you the science today. Can't wait. <laughs> I, uh, I, I read this study. Oh, you read it this in time. In full. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I won't say anything else. I'll let you uh, leave this gonna, and I'll jump in as spoil. I'm invited. Um, actually, first, there, I was um, – I just – was looking at uh, the JAMA edition that came out, as I'm sure everyone looked at this week. <laughs> that came out on, on Wednesday, uh, and it, there was there was an article in there that I thought would make you feel vindicated. As the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, which is a terrible name, mm-hmm. uh, they updated their recommendation on multivitamins to prevent cardiovascular disease and cancer, and said and said there's insufficient evidence. Yeah, that's unsurprising, <laughs> but. Yeah. Much like we'll likely discuss uh, with this paper, how reliable is even the evidence and the study that leads to that sort of conclusion? Yeah. So there's uh, there's certainly no evidence that it, it prevents those things, um, but equally so, there's no evidence that it doesn't. So there, there's no negative trials that are published necessarily. Right. And uh, I imagine nobody's lining up to do a, a multivitamin study of any kind. <laughs> You'd so, be surprised. Depends um, on the incentives. But the, but the one thing that was interesting, they talked about how in the in the most recent like national nutrition survey that they do, I think semi-annually in the U.S., 50% of people said they take some form of supplement in the U.S. Yeah, I would think that's only going to continue to rise. That's so that like what a massive market that is yeah it's crazy and yeah. it's and it's not doing anything except m- making people feel as though they don't have to do the work yeah. i think most of the time yeah the uh, other interesting thing that came out so they they actually looked at beta carotene specifically and they said the the harm of beta carotene actually outweighs any potential benefit in the literature so if you're for some reason taking an, an isolated beta carotene supplement then uh there's probably no reason, and it may even be doing you harm. Yeah, I would think for the most part, there's no reason. I'm sure there's uh, a significant, uh, a significant amount of of like the aging population who takes things as they grow older, as they become concerned with more specific uh, yeah. negative outcomes. But I think the majority of that market of supplementation is people who are trying to solve a problem that the uh, the supplement is probably not the most appropriate solution. Right. And more likely not a solution at all yeah. to that problem. <laughs> but what about what I mentioned to you the other day with the, the dog supplements that, that I saw at Costco for, for their joints, for the aging dog? People <laughs> will do anything for their dog. It's amazing. Anything. Like yeah. People who cannot take care of themselves in any aspect of life will go to the end of the earth to take care of their yeah. pets and just soak up those medical bills <laughs> yeah but I then don't... lose their mind if they have to pay a dollar for uh, anything healthcare related yeah in i don't know what themselves <laughs> i don't know what that is i'm yeah. sure there's some like psychological heuristic that you could name there of why someone yeah. would put so much into like their pet basket that they would never do to accommodate themselves uh but anyway i digress <laughs> we digress <laughs> yes okay so the, the study at hand I have is uh, published in The Lancet, I think it was last week or so, maybe a couple of weeks ago. But um, 
I thought it would be interesting because it's uh, specifically about the Mediterranean diet. And this is you know, something that probably of all diets studied out there has some of the best evidence and is one of the ones that shows up in multiple sets of guidelines. So whether it's uh, coronary disease guidelines, heart failure guidelines, hypertension guidelines, the Mediterranean diet sort of always seems to sneak its way in there as a recommended uh, form of nutritional treatment for people. This is something that I would say off the start is, though I don't know this, I'm willing to bet what constitutes a Mediterranean diet is very different between these studies. I'm sure there's it's there's mostly commonalities, but uh, I'm sure the variance between what would be considered a Mediterranean diet, especially the way that it's implemented to the uh, to the people within the trial. Yeah, I'm sure there's uh, uh, an amount of variance there that makes it itself unreliable. And this this is one of the issues. So just slapping a label on something like, okay, well, my recommendation to you is eat a Mediterranean diet. Like, what does that mean? Nobody, nobody actually knows what that means, similar to, okay, well, I just want you to eat a whole food diet. Okay, so great. <laughs> so what's the next practical so step the, there? Eat yeah. the whole amount of food. Okay, so, yeah. And then for, I think most people say, okay, so you want me to drink olive oil, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And wine. And, Red wine and olive and oil. Have, have if, you can, uh, if you can emulsify those two things together <laughs> in a single cocktail, that's probably yeah. the best thing for you. Yeah. So we'll get into the, into the weeds here. Um, so it's, it's an interesting study. It's, it was done in Spain. So, you know, should be the right people to know what a Mediterranean diet is. Actually, the same group of, uh, of investigators who did the PREDIMED study. And so that was the original big Mediterranean diet study of like 7,000 people for primary prevention, which is in individuals who were high risk to have heart disease, but had not yet been diagnosed with heart disease. So, you know, they would have risk factors like hypertension, obesity, diabetes, et cetera. Uh, and they were randomized to either a Mediterranean diet. I, I'm not sure what the comparator was in that, uh, in that setting, but there was a significant finding that it seemed to prevent later on people developing heart attacks, strokes, dying from a cardiovascular cause, et cetera. So that created a lot of hoopla at that time. I'm going to derail you for a second. So awesome. my apologies. <laughs> Just uh, this is something that I think about bringing up all the time, but never seems like an appropriate time to do it while we're recording. And now is no different, but I'm going to bring it up right <laughs> because now. Because we are recording. At, yeah. at what to, because these markers of whether it's a marker of obesity, a marker of high blood pressure, a marker of high glucose, things that we uh, commonly associate it, uh, with metabolic disorder many of those diagnostic measurements are in constant fluctuation against the averages of the population. So as the, as the population as a whole gets heavier, the markers of obesity change along with that population, or you get what I'm, what I'm saying. Sure. So at what point does that not become abnormal anymore in medicine where these things don't become red flags, whether it's someone's weight or someone's blood pressure or someone's blood glucose, because the average is shifting those things so far in an unhealthy direction that it essentially becomes the new, the new healthy. Is that something that's going to happen <laughs> well, or is that being curbed in some way? Uh, I don't know about that because like the thresholds haven't changed, right? Like your definition of overweight and obesity, that's no different. Right. Um, I mean, other hard endpoints are, are clearly, you know, there are clear definitions for what a, what a heart attack is. 
Um, there's a definition for what death is. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, should we be moving the goalposts uh, so that, say, you know, if, if a BMI of 30 is actually getting close to average for the population, does that then mean that we need to reset the threshold for 35 to be high risk? Um, not sure, but, uh, it, you know, probably does less to address the underlying problem. Um, you know, the fact that more people have more risk factors uh, is, you know, is good in one sense if you're a scientist because it increases the number of outcomes in your studies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it re- reduces the sample size. I suppose um, just if, yeah. you're a, if you're a sociopathic scientist, yeah. that's, that's what and you who want isn't more of that. These days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this, this study is called Long-Term Secondary Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease with a Med- Mediterranean Diet and a Low-Fat Diet, a Randomized Controlled Trial. Wow. And I would assume that there's yeah. also an immediate healthy <laughs> user bias compared to North Americans because this is done in a country like uh, Spain. Possibly, although if we look at who, who made it into the study, um, that may not be the case. Um, but es- essentially, the, the research question in this case was, so this is a, it's a secondary prevention population. So these are people who have established coronary heart disease. So they've had a heart attack. Um, they've had angina or something like that and some investigations to show that yes they have lesions in their coronary arteries putting them at risk for more events down the road so that's the group so this is a high high risk population these are the thousand people in spain with this problem (laughs) exactly with these these markers yeah so they wanted to take that population and who's under age 75, and they randomize them to either a Mediterranean diet, and then we'll talk about what that means, versus a low-fat diet. So this is interesting because this is not a Mediterranean diet versus just do whatever you want, you know, normal, well, it's definitely not a North American garbage diet because it was done in Spain. Right. So if they randomize people to Mediterranean diet, then probably you'd be comparing to people who are eating more of a Mediterranean diet already correct? uh, versus the low-fat diet. So the reason they chose the low-fat diet is because this is what's in the American Heart Association guidelines for people who have had coronary heart disease. So it's really Spain versus America. So are are you saying that the the low-fat arm of this study, the diet they follow is actually the the North American protocol or it's similar to? It's what's recommended in the American Heart Association guidelines. Gotcha. For people post heart attack okay. or established coronary disease. Okay, I must have yeah. missed that part in there. Yeah. So that's a really, really important point to, to highlight. And then the outcome that they looked at after they randomized to these two diets was what we call a composite outcome. So it incorporates a bunch of different things. So they would add up the total number of heart attacks, strokes, uh, peripheral vascular disease events and people who died of a cardiovascular cause. So they add all those together to increase the number of outcome events and then saw, you know, determined if there was any difference. The thing that's really great about this study, it's seven years long. So as far as nutrition studies go or any RCT for that matter, seven years is a very long time. So that's that's great. Uh, The other thing that's important to point out, there was no caloric restriction and they did not promote exercise. So they didn't do any of the other things that you would typically see in a population who maybe needed to lose weight or improve their cardiometabolic health. Which I assume is 
good in your eyes because they're trying to isolate a very specific good from variable. a scientific standpoint right yeah. so this is my first issue with this study and where you and i will will start to differ because you see it as a positive that it's seven years long and i understand why you would see that as a positive but when i think of a study that's seven years long i think there is no way that anybody in that study did the thing that the study says that they were doing consistently <laughs> For seven years. So, th th so that's a great point. So they part, part of the protocol is they have to measure that somehow because, yeah, just like you're saying, you need to know, did my patients adhere to the treatment protocol? Because if they didn't, if they just did it for a year and then fell off and did whatever they were going to do, then I'm testing nothing. It's just noise. There's no, there's no signal there. So, so they did look at that. And by the end of it, they had only a 14% dropout rate. So 14% of the entire cohort actually just stopped the diets altogether. So that's pretty good over the course of seven years. You know, the last article that, that we talked about was about a 15% dropout rate over the course of you know, like a year. But what are they using to <laughs> verify whether someone is actually sticking to the so, diet or not? So these people, in, so when you're, when you're randomized, they're getting 12 visits with different providers in the study oversight, 12, 12 visits a year. So basically every single month for seven years, they're seeing either a dietitian or a health coach or a physician overseeing the study. And is that person uh, surveying them each time that they come in? Yes. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. exactly. And then they had scoring systems that actually look at adherence. So there, there is, believe it or not, a Mediterranean diet adherence score. So they survey the person, they look at, you know, what, what have you been eating in the last little while, and they assign them a score. And at the end of the study, it's at a, a 0 to 14 scale, 8.78 was the adherence. So I, I don't ultimately know what that means, but it's kind of like, I would say, moderately okay. Yeah. And then compared to the low-fat group, which is done on a different scale, a 0 to 9 scale, so now we've got different, you know, ordinal scales here 3.89 so that sounds worse to me because it's you know less than 50 percent of the way to nine whereas you know the other one was more than 50 percent of the way to the top of the scale so the adherence in the low fat group was probably not as good as the adherence in the mediterranean diet group and you know perhaps just from a population standpoint because it was more unlike what they were accustomed to well that's what i was thinking is when i was reading through the uh the details of the diet or as detailed as the outline gets in this study the low fat arm of the diet seems to be a bit of a miserable diet i guess it depends on the person that you are <laughs> and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit but particularly when you think of in the context of someone who is a native resident of Spain, the low-fat arm of the diet, I would think, essentially ostracizes them from the family dinner. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Maybe, yeah. Uh, like, yeah. it seems Based like... Based on movies I've seen. <laughs> because uh, maybe maybe things are, are different than, than I'm assuming they are in Spain, but it's a very... Uh, it's very much a family culture it's a very much a food culture it's very much the same as as you would see in a place like italy is a lot of time is spent around the table with food imagine being the person in that group who doesn't partake in any of that and how that would change their adherence to the diet 
And then number two, if that's the environment that you are indeed in, how likely is it that you're actually sticking to your abnormal low-fat diet in the face of all of these ongoing constant family functions? And and you can you can this is completely anecdotal, if not totally <laughs> fabricated, but you could think about the about the matriarch of those family functions <laughs> when you ask for whatever it is someone in the low fat arm would ask for and just smacking them on the side yeah. of the head and being like, like shut up eat what's here yeah. what you are you talking about You're so skinny. Yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> and all of these things like yeah. this is why nutrition i guess you got to pick you got to pick the good out of what's in there Absolutely. right uh, yeah. but but within that at the higher level it's like well, let, let's talk about what the diets are. Okay. Because I think <laughs> I think that's what the listeners are dying to know is, you know, what what exactly is a Mediterranean diet as they – I have my notes here. I'm not checking. As they social media, it. I promise. <laughs> I, as, every time I make notes, they just – it totally goes by the wayside. Yeah, I mean, these probably um, aren't helpful. Okay, so I'm looking at table one in the study, which has, you know, line-by-line line Mediterranean diet versus low-fat diet. Okay, so the Mediterranean diet obviously includes a lot of olive oil. So they want you to have at least four or more tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil per day. Yeah. Okay. So you can just, you could drink it straight up. You could shoot olive oil if you want. Um, Or you can add it to your cooking, to your salads or whatever. Uh, And as a bonus of being randomized to that arm, you were delivered one liter of olive oil to use for your family every week of the study for seven years. That's beautiful. It is. Yeah. It's a good incentive. Okay. Versus the oil used in the low-fat group was supposed to be less than two tablespoons of vegetable oil. Okay. So they're encouraged to use a vegetable oil or regular olive oil, none of that extra virgin stuff. Yeah. Uh, so they're really you know, trying to reduce the amount of fat, obviously, because it's the low-fat diet group. Uh, in terms of fruits and vegetables, so it seems to me just like the Mediterranean diet, they really encouraged fresh fruit and vegetables, so more the whole food style versus the low fat where you could you could have fresh, but you could also have frozen, canned, dried, whatever you want. So th- this is the first thing that I highlighted because when you talk about a low fat diet, this is not like a marker of a low fat diet. This is just when, yeah. you, when you consider fruit, eat a more processed kind, especially including dried fruit and incentivizing dried fruit in that arm because mm-hmm. to me that's not a low fat differential that's this group it's eat the, what, the best kind what, of this group we're talking and, about and, carbs and, now yeah and yeah. this and this group eat the worst kind of this that's right. nutrient yeah. which uh, to me you're starting to skew mediterranean versus low fat into a healthier diet compared to a more yeah. unhealthy diet. Yeah, so the, I mean, and this, what does this sound like? It sounds like the bastardized, low-fat version of what's sold out there for a heart-healthy diet in, in North America. And maybe right. that's the point. I think that's the point, yeah. So they, they wanted the Mediterraneans to beat the Americans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, grains. High hurdle. <laughs> grains and potatoes. So, you know, both are supposed to be whole grains. Uh, and then, but the low the low-fat group, uh, was you know far more servings of grains and potatoes and starchy stuff. Similar thing with legumes, etc. You skipped vegetables. I don't know if you did I, that. On I kind of lumped it but... in fruit and vegetables together. Okay, gotcha. <clears throat> yeah, um, dairy two servings per day in the Mediterranean group. Two to three of low fat or fat free 
in the low fat group. So there again, you're looking at a more processed version of the dairy product because the fat has to be removed from it. Um, tree nuts are good in the Mediterranean group, not in the low fat group because nuts are fatty fish and seafood. So this is where like on the meat side of things. So in a Mediterranean diet, they want you to eat fatty fish and white meat. So basically chicken, turkey, they throw rabbit in there just for fun because lots of people are eating rabbit, I guess. At, uh, the, at a, some point in time, I don't know how many <laughs> people are eating rabbit now, but too many little bones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then in the low fat group, they want you to choose, you know, the leanest fish, the leanest uh, cuts of meat possible. Okay. Yeah. So when, uh, when grandma brings the, uh, brings the fatty meat and fatty fish onto the table, you're out of there. First person in arm two goes, yeah. uh, do you have any uh, skinless chicken breast? <laughs> <laughs> Sid, I'm yeah. sure that, that grandma, works I don't out know real well. Grandma's in Spain, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Um, okay. And then we get to red and processed meat are basically, you know, no-nos in both groups. Yeah. And that is, you know, in keeping with most heart-healthy diet teachings. Um, eggs, again, I, f- I find the egg thing weird. I don't know why they separate that. But, you know, two to four eggs per week in the Mediterranean do- diet group, which would basically lead to me starving to death. <laughs> um, and then two or fewer egg yolks per week in the low-fat diet group. So they want you to eat the yolk because there's too much fat in that yolk. Saturated mm-hmm. fat particularly, yeah. which mm-hmm. will instantaneously make your yeah. heart explode. Spontaneous combustion. Yeah. Um, and then commercial baked goods, obviously, they don't want you to eat those in, in both. Butter and margarine. Don't know why butter was disallowed in the Mediterranean group. I thought that was very strange. Uh, I guess then, just trying to further they differentiate want, the two groups. Well, I think they, they want the bulk of the fatty acids to be mono and polyunsaturated in the Mediterranean group, whereas butter, obviously, is going to be saturated fat. <clears throat> and then wine, one drink for a woman or red wine specifically, one drink for a woman, two drinks for men is, is okay in the Mediterranean group, not allowed. So they're, they, you're totally ostracized now from the dinner table. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and I don't appreciate the sexist nature of this Mediterranean diet group and why men would be allowed to drink more than women. <laughs> True, yeah. doesn't say the size of the glass, though. So if the woman had a, a glass that was twice the size, then a, you'd be okay. A, uh, a, yeah. a wise woman would make the adjustment. <laughs> Um, and then they didn't want you to drink sweet carbonated beverages on either side. The culinary techniques I thought was kind of cool. So there's this thing called sofrito, which I just learned about in this study, which is a homemade sauce with garlic, onion, aromatic herbs, and slow cooked in olive oil. It sounds delicious. Yeah. So they encourage the use of that in the Mediterranean diet. And then in the low fat, they're like, you can broil <laughs> you or roast your meat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there you go. So that that's kind of the rundown of the two diets. So just to sort of encapsulate that, the fat in the Mediterranean diet is coming from olive oil, nuts, and fatty fish. The carbs are coming predominantly from whole grains, fruit and vegetables that are fresh. And then the protein is coming from the, the fish, the white meat, your legumes and nuts uh, to some extent as well. But not hardly any dairy, hardly any eggs. So that's that's kind of the, the Coles notes there. And then what happened with this, so they actually measured you know, your baseline consumption compared to your study diet consumption. And before then, before we jump in yeah. there, I just wanted like my summary in looking at the two diets and you know, we touched on this a little bit. 
when I look at what the low fat diet group actually is, especially in the context of, uh, of a Spanish society, it's a diet that leaves less room for satiety, which is going to drive people in that group to eat more of whatever especially is left. more carbs, yeah. And whatever's left is grains and processed foods on this side, right? right? Compared compared to the Mediterranean, it's not like they explicitly say eat a bunch of processed foods, but the differentiations between the groups in a lot of cases are the more processed version of whatever food group is in there, which I think is important for people to understand because before you get to the results, of course, I can't just pretend that I, that I know this, this connection, but I, I suppose if you're looking at this, if the point of the study is to compare a Mediterranean approach to heart health versus what ends up being the ultimate recommendation in North America for people with heart problems, uh, especially if if the the assumed outcome of the study is that the uh, the North American version ends up in just being a processed food diet, not a low-fat diet. If that's the point of the study, I get it and I see the value. But if you're looking at this like, well, which is better, Mediterranean diet or low-fat diet, This is they're not comparable quality-wise. So if you're going to do a, a truly accurate comparison between two diets, and I'm not someone who, who's a promoter of a low-fat diet, but if I was going to do this study from that point of view where I wanted it to be as accurate as possible comparing a, a true Mediterranean to a true low-fat, I would want the low-fat diet to be the highest quality foods possible or at least equivalent to the other group in order to understand the difference between the two. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and all that is to say that you know the low fat diet in here is not marketed as a bad diet. Like it, it it's a healthy diet compared to what's actually going on out there most of the time. Yeah, which is w- when we kind of highlight the differences and where you know the quality of the ingredients in the Mediterranean diet are you know much better across the board. You know, that's kind of alarming that the low-fat diet is what is recommended yeah. most of the time for patients with heart disease. Yeah. There you go. So, you know, I was just going to say when when people actually implemented this diet plan, the compared to baseline, which is what you were eating before, your fat consumption in the Mediterranean group went up, the carbohydrates went down. And then the opposite happened in the low-fat group your carbohydrates went up, your fat went down. So that's kind of the the macro breakdown. The protein didn't really change. I don't think there's enough protein in either group. There you go. I agree. So what (laughs) did they find? So over the course of seven years, there was a significant difference such that at the end of that time, 22% of patients in the low-fat group had an outcome event versus 17% in the Mediterranean group. So those the numbers actually might seem startling to people that over the course of seven years, if you've already had your heart attack, you've got a one in five chance of having another one over the course of the next seven years. Uh, that's These numbers are actually quite low compared to say, what we like, expect. I would think that that was very, very low. Yeah, and that's I would w- think that once you have one heart attack, 
it's 50-50 whether you're going to have so, another one. So that's, that's one of the things that, that they talk about in, in their discussion is, you know, they, there weren't nearly as many, there were about half as many events as they were actually expecting. Which is probably just uh, as soon as you make someone <laughs> conscious of, of what they put into their body, it can probably make a significant difference. Yeah, well, and my guess is if, if so if you look at who, who made it into the study, um, you know, these are mostly 60-year-old men with metabolic syndrome with a BMI average of 31, over 90% of them had a stent in their coronary artery. And the majority of them were on aspirin, a statin medication, good blood pressure and heart rate control medication. So these people are being treated with guideline directed therapy. So they actually have, you know, good medical care and follow up despite their comorbidities. So that's probably a large portion of why the event rate was much lower because this is a well looked after population in you know traditional medicine. Um, and then you add the diets on top of that. Well, as well as the as well as the cultural differences too. Like I would For assume sure. if you took that exact same the exact same parameters of the study and the group and the outcomes and the medical care and you transplanted those people in North America you would likely see those heart attack probably higher reoccurrences uh, jump up a little bit. Yeah, probably, probably. That's a hypothesis. Um, <laughs> but again, so but what this underscores is is the notion of what we call residual risk. So when even though you're on all of the guideline directed medications and everything else, there's still risk, right? So you still have a twenty percent chance of having another event over the next seven years, according to this, despite all of that. And so that's why we're always looking for additional treatments, whether it's nutrition, whether it's new medications or whatever. Would you think that some element of that has to be genetic susceptibility in those groups as well, where heart attacks are ultimately unavoidable at at some point, at some age? Definitely. Um, But I think the family history of premature disease was about 15% of the cohort. So not that much yeah. Uh, by definition, but certainly there's, you know, there's genetic and physiologic factors within the individual that like you're never going to have zero risk. That's it's impossible because atherosclerosis is inevitable. It's going to like we all have it. Um, it's just how quickly it progresses and whether or not it causes a major problem. Right. So all of this r- comes down to the fact. So there's a five percent reduction using a Mediterranean diet compared to the low-fat diet, um, which, so 5%, what we call an absolute risk reduction, which translates into a number needed to treat of 20. So that means that I have to put 20 people like this on this diet to prevent one event over seven years. Which is pretty good. Which, as far as cardiovascular treatments go, is actually great. But that means that somebody, you know, truly has to adhere to that diet. And that's where probably the significant challenge lies. And then you'd have to ask if you did the Mediterranean diet compared to a standard North American diet, how much greater that gap would grow Mm -hmm. between the two groups. Exactly. If just left alone. So, I mean, that's the comparison I would like to see. However, they do mention in the ethics protocol, so when they apply to ethics, it's actually no longer ethical to not provide a population with nutrition advice and attempted intervention. So you can't just say, do whatever you want. That's the control arm. 
because we actually have evidence now to say that we could lower your risk. And so by not by knowingly not doing something that could lower someone's risk is a breach of ethics. These cowards in the ethics boards. What happened at the time, <laughs> like in the Minnesota study, when you could just not feed people food and yeah. see, what, see what happened? Those were the, for a those were the days. Of time. Those were the days. So, I mean, when, when we, anytime we look at this, we go, what, what can we learn from this? How can I take this information and apply it to the patients that I see in my practice? So, first of all, you know, apart from, I don't probably see a lot of Spaniards <laughs> in my clinic, but I do see a lot of, you know, men in their 60s with coronary heart disease, with metabolic syndrome, diabetes, hypertension, et cetera. And we talk to them about nutrition. So it, it's great to have additional evidence to show that, hey, you know that, you know, the normal teachings that we have that's a quote unquote heart healthy diet. Well, maybe we can actually do better than that. And it doesn't have to be um, you know, specifically Mediterranean. But what we know is that if you increase the amount of fresh fruits and vegetables and unprocessed foods and you know probably increase your protein a little bit but or or make sure that you're using you know olive oil as your oil of choice in your cooking and whatnot then you know those are all probably going to be good things that you benefit from yeah and if these are foods that uh, also if these are foods that someone does not eat on a routine basis you're also crowding out uh, the ability to eat a lot of the things that are problematic as well. So just by nature of putting of, of pushing someone to eat more of something that is not usually occurring in their diet, there's only so much a person can eat in one day. So it's not just what you're putting into their diet, but what what that addition into the diet is eliminating, or at least eliminating perhaps the quantity of those other uh, things that they would eat that would be more consequential. Sure. And I think you can have useful tools. Like if you say, you know, here's your you know, top three sources of fatty acid, here's your, your top three sources of protein, top three sources of carbohydrates. And then whenever you're eating, just you know, make sure you have one thing from each of those and, you know, that will make up mo the bulk of what you're actually eating. And that will probably be a lot better than what you're already doing or have been doing historically. Yeah, most people will take those three to nine things, put them in a blender, <laughs> plug their nose, drink it all at once, and then spend the rest of the day just eating as they normally would <laughs> and tick that box. Say what we maybe, were talking about. Maybe. We you were can, talking yeah. about us. We weren't recording. We were talking about supplements in the multivitamin, were we? I have no idea. I don't believe we were. But no, yeah, we were. Yeah, we were. That was, that was at the top. Oh, yeah. and people know what yeah. I'm referring to here. Yeah. Uh, I, I know this isn't the the scope of the podcast we're recording right now, but we were talking to uh, to I don't the one the one we did with Jen Broxman yesterday will be out at the time people listen to this one. So we were talking to Jen at the end of the podcast a little bit about how uh, agricultural policy uh, nationwide affects what is recommended in national dietary guidelines i would assume that there's the same sort of influence and lobbying efforts when it comes to what we would recommend for a heart healthy low-fat diet and i would think that uh, different sectors of agriculture get in there and make sure that you are including x amount of servings of this and lobbying for their part of the industry so None of these, none of these guidelines that come from any from from any level of government 
are without that outside influence of industry as well, which I think is something uh, especially medical professionals need to consider or nutrition uh, nutrition professionals, uh, dietitians. when you're looking at these recommended guidelines that come from the top down. It's not like it's the brightest nutrition scientists in the world who come up with these things and then pass it directly down to the professionals. It goes through a long series of lobbying and people making sure that, <laughs> that, that their industry isn't getting trampled on even if it means not recommending this food is probably better for the outcome of the patient or the person, you need to make sure that you're managing those complex government relationships between industry and government by the time a guideline gets out, which is unfortunate, but it's just the way that that things are. So when you talk about the, you know, the American guidelines for a low-fat diet, you can be sure that there's a lot of influence outside of true nutrition science or what, uh, what would be otherwise recommended at the end of the day. It goes through all these filters that are, that are probably somewhat unhelpful. Yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure. And if, I mean, if there's anybody in government, in government listening, then uh, if you want to subsidize oil, should subsidize olive oil. That's right. That's right. <laughs> don't uh, don't subsidize. Well, what I would wonder be the alternative uh, there? if those shops like uh, like all of me, you know, when you go in and they've got all these taps I, with I, like different I, infused <laughs> olive oils. Like I see those places. If they that see I this study, like this... do they just like hang it on the door and like you know celebrate? And... I see those olive oil bars in places, and yeah. I think this must be a criminal organization money laundering <laughs> scheme. You think it's a fight? Like, is there that like is there a market demand for people to go to a place and drink olive oil? Is it like a high volume business. I don't know. I have no idea. Anyhow. I've never Any, been in one. Anything else <laughs> my point exactly. Yeah. Uh, anything you want to add? I don't think so. No, I, it's, you know, it was uh, a fun journal club. And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to join our club, just <laughs> shoot us an email. <laughs> We're uh, the, the bar is low. We're accepting please, applications please. and there's not much that's, that's required on there. Obviously, I'm here. So uh, you, you don't require too much professional designation, I would say. <laughs> but you read it. <laughs> I yeah, that's, that's, good. True. Yeah. that's true. That's true. 50-50. <laughs>